In spite of this being a very wonderful time of the year for all of us, it's also a time of genuine pressure everywhere. Uh, a lot of you are having some real problems these days. You've got a lot of big projects that are due. And to make it worse, your computer has lost it. Uh, you know, the Roman Catholics have various places for people to go when they die, like Limbus and Fontum, that's where unbaptized infants. And your document has gone to what we call Limbus Documentum. Uh, it's a place of departed documents that will never be seen again, and you've lost it. Uh, things are going bad. To make it worse, uh, your girlfriend or boyfriend has pushed the delete button on her personal computer. Uh, and you are no longer on her screen or his screen either. You're behind in your bills. Uh, your roommate's angry with you. And everything is going wrong right at a time when you want everything to go so right. And a lot of times you say, why am I having all of these pressures placed upon me? Well, may I let you in on a little bit of information that this is not the first generation of Christianity to receive pressure. The Apostle Paul was constantly under pressure and under affliction. And believe it or not, he had some of the same attitudes towards it that you do. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I would like for you to read how the Apostle Paul handled it when he felt he was under severe pain, severe buffeting by Satan and just didn't know what to do. We're going to look at that section of Scripture this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul had been given many gifts by God. Paul had, if I am not mistaken, nearly every gift that God has ever given to anyone. He had them all. He had the gift of tongues. He said, I speak in tongues more than you all. He used these in his evangelistic missions around the world. We have record of his speaking at least four different languages. The Apostle Paul had the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. There was no gift that the Apostle Paul did not have. And so it's rather strange that when we look at this context, the Apostle Paul said, there was given to me the same word that is used of the giving of a gift. Now, some gifts we appreciate, some we don't. Here, there is a very special gift Paul was given, a thorn in the flesh. Now, when these thorny circumstances come into our lives, we feel depressed, uh, let down. Now, let's face it. 
We've got to be honest with ourselves to solve our problems. We get angry with God for all of these things that come in our lives. We get furious with God. We call it having a prayer meeting, but quite frequently it's more like a spiritual temper tantrum. You know, we pound our fist and our feet and cry, Oh God, why did you let this happen? Uh, we feel like saying, thanks a lot. You know, I really needed that gift. But too often, we only see the thorny side of adversity. Now, in the previous part of chapter 12, Paul had been rejoicing in all the wonderful revelations that God had given to him. He had been using all of these gifts that God gave for the benefit of the church. Great blessings had come upon many people through his ministries. And now... This thorn has come to afflict him. And apparently Paul thought along with us that if only I could get rid of this problem, I would be a far more benefit to the Lord's service. That's always our thinking. I could serve the Lord better if it were not for this. Therefore, we have to realize that there are times when we see the reality of adversity. Paul uses an expression here that's very fascinating. He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, this figure of speech may have come from Paul's real experiences. For as Paul walked all across the roads of that day, I am certain that many times he encountered just that, a thorn in his flesh. You know, the figure is aptly chosen for a problem that really bothers you because a thorn has a way of getting into the flesh and embedding itself there. It's hard to get out. And the more you walk on it, the further it digs up into the foot and it becomes a constant and consistent, a continuing pain. It's an ever-increasing pain. It brings festering and feverish pain. And there is something that must be done about it. But as I look at this word for thorn, it also has another meaning a meaning that was quite well known in that day. The same word is the word stake. Now this is merely a stick with a very sharp point on it. And one of the most cruel methods of execution that was ever invented in ancient times was death at the stake. The victim was placed upon the stake and the weight of his body would gradually pull down upon the stake so that he would be impelled and it was a slow, horrible, agonizing death. So when Paul says there's something in his body that is creating this problem, it may be something so simple as a thorn, or he may be feeling that he is impaled on a stake and ready to die. But he states this is in his flesh. Now, scholars always like to read the simple things and make them difficult. And so we have many, many ideas of what the flesh is. Some say it was a physical malady. They try to even identify it from 2,000 years distance. They try to say it's epilepsy, malaria, ophthalmia, he had bad eyesight. This to me does not seem to indicate anything of the sort. Paul was accustomed to deprivation and hardship. This had to be something unusual for him to even bring attention to it. Others say, ah, the flesh is a flesh in the sense of carnality. Paul was constantly tempted to sensual matters. I don't believe so. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that such afflictions are common to every man and that if we pray about it, God will give us the ability to escape from these 
Paul could not escape from his thorn. That was not the problem. Whatever it was, the thorn was in his flesh and Paul knew it. There's something else involved. And listen, please, very carefully. At the same time, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul knew that he was in the will of God. Now, this is a lesson that you must learn or else you will be frustrated your entire Christian experience. Do not think that every time sickness, hardship, accident, tragedy, illness, all of these pressures, do not think that when they come to your life that God is punishing you for it. Oh, that is a horrible attitude. It is contrary to the Word of God. We need to look at this passage very carefully. Remember that the sun does not always shine, and that's even here in sunny Southern California. Sometimes there is going to be rain in your life. This leads me to a conclusion, that if Paul knows that he's in the will of God and knows that he is suffering, then he realizes that God must have permitted it. Now, the only surprise in this is that we are surprised that affliction comes. For God has always allowed His people to be tested, to be tempted, to suffer adversity. Have you ever heard of Job? Why, certainly he was in God's will. And God allowed horrible things to come to Job through the messenger of Satan to, harp, to test him to see what he was. God allowed Adam and Eve to be tempted. In fact, the Lord told the disciples the evening before he was to depart, in this world you have tribulation. Interesting that word tribulation is the same as the word pressure. You're going to have pressure. Every day of your life, you're going to have pressure. Sometimes it'll be so severe that you feel like you're the toothpaste in the tube. You know, you're just being squirted out. And you don't, you're, there's no going back. You don't know what you're going to do. But that is the point. In this world, you have tribulation and pressure. John 17, 15, the Lord said to the disciple, to the Father in praying, Father, I do not pray that you will take them out of the world. What the Lord is saying is that as long as you are in this world, you are going to suffer every single pain that anyone else in this world could possibly suffer. You are going to have the same hardships, the same difficulties. Everything is going to be the same other than the fact of the provision of God for you. So don't expect to escape the pressures and the difficulties of this life because you are a believer, nor should you ever accept that when there is trouble in your life and difficulty, you should not automatically assume that it is because God is punishing you, not at all. You see, not only is there a reason for this affliction, Paul sees something deeper with the spiritual eyes. He sees that there is a person behind this affliction. Notice, please, in verse 7, he said, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Here is the point. Even in his pain, Paul had the spiritual perception not to blame God. As a pastor, I am constantly called to the houses and where there has been tragedy. And nearly every time I've ever gone where there's been some horrible tragedy, the same refrain is chanted back to me. Oh, Pastor, why did God let this happen? You know, I've never heard once a person say, 
Why does the devil have to be so cruel and bring these things about? You see, the devil is the author of sin. The devil is the author of pain. The devil is the instrument of bringing irritation and adversity. Why don't we see this instead of trying to blame God for it? Let's give the devil due credit for his work. It is a work of Satan. Remember, this is the messenger of Satan and the messenger of Satan always wants to harm us. That's why Paul acknowledges there is pain involved. Sometimes we're so spiritual that we're afraid to acknowledge that we're having difficulties in our life. Sometimes we're afraid to say, yes, there is pain here. Paul says that's the nature of the work of Satan. Oh, I like the word here, but I don't really like it. I, at least I'm glad I know the meaning of it. The word here to buffet, it means to pound with a fist. It means to take the fist and keep pounding and pounding and pounding. It speaks of the old-time prize fighters who used bare knuckles. Uh, they kept crashing into the face of the opponent till he was senseless, hopefully out permanently, see? This is the cruelty. There is pain involved. But any pain can be endured if we can be assured there is a reason for this adversity. Paul has stated here with spiritual sight that it is a messenger of Satan to me, but watch to keep me from exalting myself. Sometimes God needs to keep us humble. Oh, I've been through those times in my life. And thankfully, I was able, after a few moments of meditation, to say, Lord, thank you. I needed that humiliating experience. God brought it to me to say, okay, you needed this. This is what you need now. You want to be exalted. And now, here is a message of Satan to bring you down to where you realize what you really are. It is the work of God to allow Satan to remind us of our human frailty. And here, Paul is humbled. You're down in the valley and not on the mountaintop. Well, John Calvin said this, Valleys get rain, the summits remain dry. If any man wishes to experience the grace of God, let him become a valley. When I'm on the mountaintop, I'm not so aware that I need God. I'm positive that I'm just up there flying, looking out over the beautiful scenes, exalting, breathing in the rarefied air. That's marvelous. But in the valley of despair and depression, I feel so dry and so low. There is the opportunity to experience the grace of God. Well, Paul did exactly what we do when we have these problems. He said, oh God, I don't like this. Notice in verse 9, verse 8 rather, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He uses the same word as a, uh, from which we get the word Holy Spirit. And he says, I called Him alongside. I exhorted Him. I prayed Him. said, please, come alongside and help me. And now, he says, for this thing. Notice, please, particular prayer for particular needs. Paul says, Lord, for this thing, I'm not praying for anything else now, this one thing, and he presented to the Lord, and he did it in a persevering fashion three times. Now, the Apostle Paul prayed without ceasing. 
in nearly every epistle of his, he makes an explicit statement that I pray for you without interruption. You are to be praying incessantly. This is a continuing refrain from Paul. But there are times when our permanent prayer needs to be focused onto a particular thing. And Paul says, this thing became the object of my prayer three times. Now, I know Paul was just a man. I do not elevate him beyond human stature. But somehow, I believe if I had been around, if Paul had prayed for me, I would have felt a little more comfortable than when I prayed. Somehow, I believe Paul's prayer life was a little deeper than mine. And so when Paul says, I prayed three times, I can imagine the anguish, the earnestness, and the absolute biblical perfection of the prayer and the absolute relinquishing of his will to God. And he brought it to God the Father three times. Does that sound familiar? I'm reminded of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane where before the crucifixion three times he went to God the Father and said, Oh God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And God the Father said, Son, drink the cup. And Christ did the Father's will. Paul said three times, Oh God, remove this from me. The Lord said, I've got something better for you, Paul. Let's see what that thing is better. The better thing, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. This brings me to the whole purpose of a message for the morning. The advantages of adversity. Can you believe that people can think that it's advantageous to have adversity? Well, let's see what this is. First, the practice of prayer. It's amazing to me how little time I have for prayer until tragedy strikes. I find it so difficult to squeeze in 10 minutes, 15 minutes here and there for prayer in my life. I am so busy doing God's work. And I am. I'm involved in the Word of God every minute of every day in one way or another. And I know that my heart is praying, but I don't have that time for special prayer. But it's amazing when circumstances come along that demand it. I have untold hours for prayer. I've seen that in my life where God allowed adversity to come and where I spent nearly every night for a month in prayer. I couldn't sleep. I felt I could pray all night and I could go in the strength of the prayer, but it was not until adversity came that I had that much time. Isn't that amazing? How God allows us to come into this place. That's why in all of the history of the Christian church, some of the greatest saints have been those that had the greatest physical adversity. They learned the secret of the advantage of their adversity. They had time to prayer. Let's look at Paul. Paul's thorn in the flesh caused him to pray three times. Now, there is no magic in the number three, but at least it does show Paul spent extra time in prayer for that affliction. And I'm sure if Paul had been our day, he would say, Lord, why didn't you answer the phone on the first ring? You know, here I'm calling and calling and calling. It seems like nobody's at home. 
A young man who had encountered severe difficulties in his life consulted with a pastor. He said, Oh God, to the pastor, he said, I've prayed, Oh God, remove this. He said, Pastor, why is it when I pray and pray and pray, the Lord doesn't answer my prayers? The pastor answered something to the young man, obviously giving a proper answer to it. But he spoke in such a low tone that the young man said, I'm sorry, Pastor, I couldn't hear you. Uh, would you repeat that? And the, man moved, the young man moved closer to the pastor's desk and leaned over. And again, the pastor answered in such a fashion that the young man saw it was a very sincere answer, but he couldn't hear it. And he was so eager to hear it, he moved around the desk and stood right by the pastor's mouth. And the third time he heard it, this time the pastor said, Sometimes the Lord speaks softly so that we must draw very near to Him. <laughs> Did you catch it? Why don't we hear the voice of God? He wants us to draw near to Him. And he is aware that while we are in such good health, in such good circumstances, that we'll be going our way and we won't be going his way. This is the whole point. It gives us prayer. Time for prayer. Adversity gives time for prayer. But also, even more important, it allows us to see a perception of the grace of God. Verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I want you to listen to this answer. My grace. This tells us a quality of grace. It is God's full grace. And He states, my grace is sufficient for you. What a marvelous quantity of grace it is given to us. In Philippians, uh, in Ephesians, rather, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says something very similar to this. He states in a prayer for the people of God that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. This is the way that God works. When we are weak, then we allow His grace to come in and we allow that we are allowed to learn that grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. <laughs> sufficient? Paul is a master of the understatement. God's grace was sufficient to cause him to create a world. God's grace is sufficient to cause him to create Adam and Eve and then sufficient to save them from their sin. God's grace is sufficient to uh, establish and preserve the Messianic line. It was sufficient to save the nation of Israel. It was sufficient to send Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross. And the grace of God was sufficient to reach down and save me. Listen, if God's grace is sufficient to save my soul for eternity, then God's grace is sufficient to meet my everyday need. The sufficiency of the grace of God. A third advantage of adversity, it allows us to perceive the power of God. Notice this. Here we are able to see in this very passage, verse 9, 
My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Here we see not only a perception of the power of God, but the perfection of it. God's grace is absolutely sufficient. His power can be perfected, but notice only in me. When I am weak, as long as I am strong, I do not rely on the grace of God. When I am weak, I am absolutely positive of the working of the power of the grace of God. When I am strong, it's me. When I am weak, it's God. Paul's response is very interesting. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. I am well content. <laughs> Wait a minute, Paul. Do you really tell me that you are content with weaknesses, with insults, with difficulties, with distresses and persecutions? You are content with that? Come on, how can you be content with that? You know, as I read that list, it reminds me in another way of an old song that Julie Andrews sang. You know, these are a few of my favorite things. Well, these are not a few of my favorite things. I'm not very well content with these distresses and persecutions and problems and trials. Let's see what Paul is saying. Maybe a closer look at this word, I am content, would help us. It comes from the word, the very word, which means, I think it is good. I think it is good. What could cause Paul to think it is good? Listen carefully. This shows consent to the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. If I believe that God is sovereign, and if I believe He is good, then I must believe that what is happening to me is in God's sovereign plan, and I must believe that what is happening to me is for my good. My favorite psalm is Psalm 100 for one reason. It, it, it epitomizes the entire theology of David in two phrases. Know that the Lord is God. Know that the Lord is good. David's whole theology is God is sovereign and God is good. Now, if I am completely dedicated to the sovereignty of God and I'm completely released in my mind to the intellectual acceptance that God is sovereign and God is good, then whatever is happening in my life at this moment is God's sovereign plan at work. And if I believe God is good and loves me, then the thing that is happening now is the very best thing in the world that can happen. I believe that. I believe it. I've had to face it. I've had to look down the road and say, whatever happens, God is good. I'll tell you, it's true. It works. Jacob had reached the absolute bottom of the pit of depression. His beloved wife, Rachel, had died in childbirth. His favorite son, Joseph, was dead, so he thought. Famine had come in the land. In order to get grain, he sent his sons down in Egypt. While there, they had been accused as spies, and Simeon now was languishing in a prison in Egypt because of it. 
And in order to get more grain, he was going to have to allow his next favorite son to be sent down with them. And he didn't know what to do. Finally, he realized there was no other alternative. He called the sons to him and said, All right, listen to these words from the mouth of Jacob as he cries out, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Let's leave off the part about the family. All these things are against me. Oh, I've got so many tests and I've got so many problems and my work isn't working right and my computer broke and uh, I don't feel good and nobody loves me. All these things are against me. I don't think that's too unfamiliar to you. I believe I sense it. Many of you have almost said those words maybe in the last hour. Isn't that right? What was the truth? God in His sovereignty had foreseen what had happened. God in His sovereignty had used the animosity of the brothers of Joseph to put Joseph in Egypt. God in His sovereignty had elevated Joseph to the supreme ruler of the land. And He had utilized these matters that Jacob thought were all against him as the very thing to save the nation of Israel, to preserve the family, and to elevate it to wealth beyond their imagination in Egypt. All these things were for him, for God works all things to the good for those who love him. It's the whole point that we see one who is truly trusted in God can rejoice in circumstances that otherwise would send him reeling to the ground. God is able to do it. His grace is sufficient. Now, it is only when we are content with the will of God, it is only when we are content with His sovereignty, it is only when we are aware that He is in charge that we can rejoice in this. And in verse 10, Paul states, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is it then that permits us to rejoice in what others see as dire perils and deprivations, embarrassments and sufferings? It's an awareness of the strength of our weakness. As long as we are strong, God's grace cannot be operative. But when we are weak and are trusting this, Paul says, most gladly therefore will I boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The coming days... Some of you may receive a thorn in your flesh. <laughs> Some of you will think you've fallen into the entire briar patch. <laughs> Not just one. I'm loaded with them. Well, remember to look at it as a gift from God. It was given to me. Oh boy, I've got a special gift no one else has. <laughs> think of it. That's exactly what Paul is saying. 
And what are you going to do about it, Paul? I am going to rejoice in this gift. And he holds up the thorn proudly and says, look at the gift God has given me. But Paul, what makes you so happy? It allows me to be drawn closer to God in prayer. It allows me to perceive the grace of God. It allows me to see the perfection of the power of God. Therefore, I think it's good because I think God is sovereign and God is good. Heavenly Father,